you raise your right hand and repeat after me? I, 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 Clarence Thomas, I, Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all of the duties, all, all the, the duties, duties incumbent upon me under the Constitution and laws of the United States. So, so help me God. God. This is Bound by Oath, a new podcast series from the Institute for Justice's Center for Judicial Engagement. Thanks for tuning in. In the first episode, we talked about what the world was like before the 14th Amendment. In this episode, we're going to talk about the birth of the amendment itself, the people behind it and opposed to it, and why its ratification was so controversial that it nearly plunged the country back into war. The story of the 14th Amendment is one of the most dramatic stories in American constitutional history. The amendment was born of political desperation. It almost caused a second civil war, and it was only passed after the impeachment of an American president. What you have for the first time is an entire population of people who up until then had been considered to be property actually sitting down and rewriting that document that had enslaved them. To me, that's a radical thing. To me, it sort of, it, it, it goes in a very, very deep sense to what the amendment was meant to do and what it stands for and why we should value it as much as we value the 1787 Constitution. If you're not a lawyer, the text of the 14th Amendment is probably unfamiliar. Here's section one of the amendment which does most of the heavy lifting in terms of protecting individual rights. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Here's the fundamental change the 14th Amendment makes to the Constitution. The original 1787 Constitution contains strict limitations on federal power, but relatively few limitations on what state governments could do to their residents. The rights that we associate with the founding era, like the right to free speech and the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, those only apply to the federal government. If a state government punished you for speaking out against slavery, for instance, the federal constitution had nothing to say about it, even though it's in the Bill of Rights, which was not an accident. The thought was that because state and local governments were closer to the people, it was much less likely that they would become tyrannical. But after the Civil War, state and local governments show that even in the aftermath of defeat, they can be very tyrannical indeed. It's 1865. The Civil War is over. As many as 800,000 Americans have lost their lives. Bodies are still decaying in the fields. Soldiers' families are awaiting word of their whereabouts. Four million slaves, one-eighth of the population, are now free, many of them anxiously searching for loved ones they've been separated from. The economy is devastated. The federal government is mired in debt. The country is in chaos. Welcome to Reconstruction. Well, it's a disaster. The problems that the country is facing at that point are greater than the problems that face the founding fathers after the end of the Revolutionary War or probably any set of leaders at any other point in American history. I mean, first of all, the South is in ruins, or at least large segments are, are just in ruins, and they are under occupation by the Union Army. That's Gerard Magliocca. He's a professor at the Indiana University McKinney School of Law. There is a very large open question about what do you do with the ex-Confederate states? What about the fact that the Confederacy racked up all this debt? What's going to happen with that? What about the fact that the Union racked up all of this debt to fight the war? What about the fact that the leader of the Union was just assassinated a few months earlier? You know, try to imagine what would uh, our post-revolutionary history have looked like if George Washington had been gunned down in 1783 or something like that. So 
Uh, these are enormous challenges and challenges challenges that have no precedent. When we finished episode one, President Lincoln had signed the 13th Amendment and sent it to the states for ratification. Over the course of 1865, it becomes clear that the votes are there. Slavery will soon definitively be unconstitutional. But even as the southern states are ratifying the 13th Amendment, at the very same time, they are passing a series of laws called the Black Codes, which reinstate slavery in all but name. Everyone was in a situation where they were scrambling for food and scrambling to put their lives back together. Southern white officials were particularly concerned with keeping the labor that they had had under slavery under their control so that they could rebuild themselves. That's Kurt Lash, a professor of law at the University of Richmond. So they enacted the Black Codes as an effort to try and control the slaves, the former slaves, the now freedmen, and keep them available to work the plantations in a form of quasi-slavery. It was an act of both racism and economic desperation. The Black Codes are the beginning of what comes to be called the convict leasing or peonage system. We can think of them as a series of laws that provide an excuse to arrest black people. One of the ways they tried to recreate a slave-like existence or slavery-like existence was to pass all of these really restrictive draconian laws that if a black person was found to have violated would essentially allow them to be um, put back in bondage. That's Daniel Harawa, a lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Not only do the Black Codes empower local law enforcement to arrest black people for trivial things, but the codes give them a powerful incentive to do it. Once you're arrested, you get charged jail fees and court fees. Even if you're not convicted, you wind up owing. And if you can't pay, the sheriff will find a local landowner to pay for you. The sheriff pockets the money, and you get leased out to work on a plantation in slave-like conditions, maybe even for your former owner. So vagrancy is kind of what it sounds like. If somebody didn't own property or didn't have a job, they were considered, quote-unquote, vagrant. They could be arrested, they could be prosecuted, they could be jailed, and then be bonded out to um, plantation owners to work for free, um, which essentially was just recreating slavery in a different name. If you wanted to stay on the right side of vagrancy laws, you more or less had to be under the protection of a local white landowner. To get that protection, you had to sign a labor contract. And in some states, the law said you had 10 days after the new year to sign a contract or face criminal penalties. These were very one-sided labor contracts where former slave masters or slaveholders um, would enter into contracts with the people who were enslaved on their plantations. And these contracts would be for little to no money, would a lot of times just be for subsistence. Knowing that their workers would go to jail if they didn't agree to these labor contracts, planters imposed conditions like requiring 19 hours of work a day or requiring workers to accept all their pay at the end of the contract year. Here's how a Freedmen's Bureau agent in Mississippi described the attitude of former slave owners. The people here feel very indignant that they are obliged to hire Negroes they used to own and will by every possible means endeavor to evade the payment of wages due to them. By the way, the Freedmen's Bureau is a federal agency created by Congress in 1865 to assist with emancipation. It sent agents all over the South who saw the effects of the Black Codes firsthand. The Codes specifically said freedmen could be whipped for failing to abide by the terms of a contract, but if a landowner broke the contract, freedmen and women rarely had recourse in local courts. According to another Freedmen's Bureau agent in Mississippi, in the fall of 1865, former slaves were wandering the roads, starving and naked after being kicked off plantations without pay once the crops had been harvested, some of them with bruises and other signs of violence. And if a person no longer wanted to be a part of that contract, they were often penalized under the law for doing so. So it was a forced contract in that they entered the contract because they had no other alternative, um, but then they could never leave the contract for fear of being arrested, punished, and then ultimately bonded out into a slavery-like um, situation. The codes also imposed some rules on white people. It was illegal, for instance, to try and hire blacks away from their employers by offering better pay or working conditions. It's kind of reasserting this idea of ownership over somebody, right? Where this is my person, my property as it was in slavery, and now my employee, 
uh, if you can even call somebody in that situation employee, and they're mine and you can't take them from me. I have ownership over them. Here's how a group of freedmen described the situation in Tuscumbia, Alabama, in November 1865. We want a school here and can't get one. If we have any money, we can't buy anything except we get a white man to get it for us. They say it is against the law to sell Negroes powder and shot, and even if you had the ammunition, you has not got the land to hunt on. If a white man strike you with a rock, you are not allowed to look mad at him. We want justice. We are treated here like dogs. Another aspect of the Black Codes was the fierce insistence that blacks be prevented from doing anything that looked like entrepreneurship or obtaining any sort of economic independence. Mississippi, for example, prohibited the sale or lease of farmland to blacks. The codes also imposed occupational licensing. If you want to do any work other than husbandry and sort of farming work, and you're, quote, colored person, you need a license. That's Addison Francois, a professor of law at Georgetown University. In order to obtain the license, you need to show that you fit. In order to show that you fit, you need to be a good moral character and you need to pay somewhere between 10 to to $100, which at the time was a fortune. If you're a black person in South Carolina in 1865 and you want to do any job other than farm worker or domestic servant, you need a license. And local authorities have unlimited discretion to refuse to grant one. Mississippi had a similar law. Sometimes licensing happened at the local level. In Marengo County, Alabama, for instance, a black man was prosecuted for operating a barber shop without a license and was only spared being put on the chain gang when two white men, presumably customers, paid his fine and court fees. Black women could be arrested for doing laundry without a license. The black codes were stifling, and yet in some places, African Americans did succeed in working for themselves and beginning to play a role in civic and political life. And this is something that is simply unacceptable to many whites. So unacceptable that armed gangs known as regulators and night riders roam the countryside murdering, raping, robbing, and chasing people out of their homes and off their land. Secret organizations like the Ku Klux Klan emerge, and government officials either turn a blind eye or directly support the terrorist violence that engulfs the South. They targeted mostly um, folks who were advocating political power for blacks. Um, they didn't simply target blacks for what it's worth. They also targeted Northern whites um, who came to the South. They targeted schools. They targeted teachers. One of the sort of underappreciated aspect of Reconstruction was that the greatest push by the newly freed slave wasn't really about um, economic corporations, if you will. It was really a fierce desire for education. And you see them first importing from the North um, teachers. And these schools became a big target of the KKK. They became a big target of these night rides. Um, and I say this because one of the things that you'll notice also is that over time, as you look to various sort of so-called racial riots that occurred in various cities, inevitably what always occurred is that schools were targeted. In Memphis in May 1866, whites go on a rampage led by police and other city officials. They massacre blacks for three days and nights. I believe the numbers that they killed, 50 people, injured a lot more, raped women, burned down a bunch of houses and cabins, but they also burned down every single one of the 12 schools for um, blacks that were in Memphis. So I make this point to say that Sometimes when we speak about the KKK and we talk about the night rides, we often talk about the fact that they targeted their violence toward um, black seeking political power. But on another specific target of the KKK were also schools. Um, it was, to be blunt, an easy target. It was a visible target. And it was a target that was designed to instill the greatest terror uh, in the population. 
um, because there was not there was nothing that would make you feel more vulnerable than the fact that the organization would actually um, target a place where children would be educated. As Congress tries to figure out what needs to happen to reintegrate the southern states back into the Union, they form the Joint Committee on Reconstruction. The committee summons people to Washington to testify about events in the South, and much of the testimony, to borrow a phrase from the historian Nell Irvin Painter, is just buckets of blood. We're going to read just one excerpt. It's the testimony of Dexter Clapp, who organized and commanded the 38th United States Colored Troops during the war. We edited the transcript moderately. Please go to shortcircuit.org for the full version. At the time of his testimony in February 1866, Dexter Clapp is an agent with the Freedmen's Bureau in North Carolina. The committee member doing the questioning is Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan. What position have you recently been occupying in the service? I was Lieutenant Colonel of the 38th United States Colored Troops. I am now on duty in the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Land, in charge of 20 counties in the central part of North Carolina. Have you mingled much with the people of North Carolina since you have been there? I have been constantly in contact with all classes of people. What effect would it have to withdraw the United States troops and the Freedmen's Bureau from North Carolina? I think that all Northern men would be in great danger of personal injury, and that the Freedmen would be without any protection whatever, and subject to great oppressions. I think that killing Freedmen would be the rule. Go on and give the narrative. Some eight weeks ago, several returned rebel soldiers went into the village of Washington and commenced shooting and beating Union men. Several assaults were made and at least one Union man was publicly whipped in the streets and some Negroes were wounded. On their return, they met on the public highway a Negro. They first castrated him and afterwards murdered him in cold blood. These persons, a short time afterwards, gave themselves up to the civil authorities, but they soon escaped by overpowering the jailer. An order was issued to the police of that county to arrest them. This was not done. Meanwhile, this party continued to commit outrages. I know that several Negroes were shot by them. On the 25th of December, the father of one of these parties rode up to a plantation where two Negro boys, 10 and 12 years old, were playing in the yard. He took them, one mile direct into a swamp, and there he shot them, killing one instantly and wounding the other. Of the thousand cases of murder, robbery and maltreatment of freedmen that have come before me, and of the very many cases of similar treatment of Union citizens in North Carolina, I have never yet known a single case in which the local authorities or police or citizens made any attempt or exhibited any inclination to redress any of these wrongs or to protect such persons. That seems to me the worst indication of the state of society there. Worse than the fact that these things take place. How did the governor demean himself towards such outrages? Did he make any efforts as governor of the state to punish them? I know of no such efforts that he has made. Have these scenes been brought to his attention? I have known of several instances in which outrages were committed and in which he exerted his influence with the military authorities to have them passed over. I can specify some particular instance. Do so. A sergeant of the local police of Johnson County brutally wounded a freedman when in his custody and while the man's arms were tied by striking him on the head with his gun. The freedman having committed no offense whatever that was shown. This freedman lay in the hospital, which is under my charge, at the point of death for several weeks. The same day, the sergeant whipped another freedman, having searched his house and found no stolen property there. He whipped him so that from his neck to his hips, his back was one mass of gashes. While the sergeant was under my charge and while I was investigating the matter, 
very many prominent citizens interested themselves to have him entirely discharged. Does a unionist or a freedman stand much chance for justice in the state courts? I think not, emphatically. Go on and relate any other facts that you may know of, illustrating the state of feeling in North Carolina. A freedman by the name of Cotton was assaulted by a white man. He defended himself. A fight ensued, which terminated in the freedman's running away to preserve his life. He was arrested by the military police and put into jail, which was the means of saving his life from the mob. He was tried by the provisional justice the same night and sentenced to be publicly whipped, then to be tied up by the thumbs for two hours, his toes touching the ground only. While the justice was writing out the sentence in the courtroom, the Negro was assaulted by the man with whom he had the difficulty. The white man striking him twice on the head, felling him to the ground insensible. The justice still insisted upon inflicting the penalty which the deputy sheriff did, with the exception of letting the Negro's feet rest partially on the ground. This penalty was inflicted in violation of the laws of the state of North Carolina, which only allow a man to be whipped on sentence after a trial by jury. In this case, there was no jury. Who appointed the Black Guard Justice? The governor. I will state also that in the lower portions of Johnson County and in Sampson and Duplin counties, being in the vicinity of the Battle of Bentonville, many freedmen had obtained worn-out horses and mules from the army and from the battlefield. These have all been taken away from them, either by midnight robbery or open violence. These are representative instances which illustrate the general state of feeling there. In just that testimony, you have conduct perpetrated by state and local government officials that would violate the Fourth Amendment's protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, the Fifth Amendment's guarantee of due process, the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial, the Eighth Amendment's protections against cruel and unusual punishment. But in 1866, the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to the states. If you can't get justice in state courts, you're out of luck. Something had to be done. When we get back from the break, Congress embarks on Reconstruction. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States of America. This Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, the senators and representatives, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. Okay, we're back. Thanks for sticking with us. News of the Black Codes and atrocities in the former Confederate states have reached Congress. But even though the Republican Party, which is the party of emancipation, controls both houses of Congress, there's a major problem. Here's Kurt Lash of the University of Richmond Law School. The Civil War ends in 1865, and the 39th Congress meets on December 4th, 1865. And when they meet, they are about to experience the ratification of the 13th Amendment. It hasn't happened yet. They're waiting for a few more states to ratify. What are the states that are ratifying? The southern states. The same states that were in rebellion were the states that were now in the process of following the instructions of new President Andrew Johnson, who set up provisional governments in the South asked them to ratify the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and promised them that if they did so, they would be quickly restored to the missing or empty seats um, in Congress. So they did so. And it quickly became apparent that there were going to be sufficient votes to ratify the 13th Amendment. So the southern states sent their representatives 
to Congress for that opening day on de- December 4th, 1865. Um, they showed up waiting for their names to be called, and they were left standing at the door. The Republicans refused to call their names for the roll. Um, and when they demanded, both the Democrats and also the Southern representatives who had showed up to take their seats, when they demanded an explanation from the clerk of the House um, as to why they were not um, being called for the roll, um, you have Thaddeus Stevens interrupting the clerk and saying, no need, we know all, um, announcing that everyone knew why they weren't being admitted. Thaddeus Stevens, the radical Republican from Pennsylvania. More on him later. There's a lot to that statement by Thaddeus Stevens. What they knew was that they couldn't possibly admit, uh, admit these representatives until they solved an enormous problem. And it was a problem that was caused by the 13th Amendment itself. It had been a, a glorious achievement in the nation's history that we abolished slavery. But when those slaves were made free, it was going to have a dramatic impact on the political power of Democrats in the South. Under the original Constitution, slaves counted as three-fifths of a person and gave something sometimes called the, the slavery bonus uh, for slaveholding states in terms of their representation in the House of Representatives and also um, in the Electoral College, helping them in terms of choosing the President of the United States. When they became free under the 13th Amendment, they were now going to count as five-fifths of a person in terms of representation in the House of Representatives and in the Electoral College. That means that when the Democrats, when the rebels returned to Congress, they were going to return with more political power having lost the Civil War than they had had um, prior to the beginning of the Civil War. And they could dominate the Reconstruction agenda. The Republicans couldn't let that happen. They had to ensure that representation by the former rebels would be limited so that they couldn't take over um, the congressional agenda as they tried to go about Reconstruction. That's what they were facing on December 4th, and that's why they didn't let them take their seats. That's one pressing problem, but there are others. There needed to be some response to the former rebel leaders, whether or not um, they could continue to vote or be political players in national politics after having betrayed the nation. So President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln after Lincoln was killed, uh, granted a broad amnesty to people who, for example, had just served in the Confederate Army, uh, while reserving to some extent the question of what do you do with the leadership of the Confederacy. That's Gerard Maglioka of Indiana University again. There was a strong feeling that the leaders of the Confederacy ought not to be elected to positions of power in the newly reunited United States. And so, There was great suspicion, especially because some of these same um, ex-Confederate leaders were actually elected in elections held after the end of the Civil War uh, to positions in the House and Senate. And they showed up in December of 1865 saying, "Okay, well, we've been elected and now we're ready to come back. And people looked at that and said, that's ridiculous. You have Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, showing up uh, to reclaim a seat that he had held in Congress before the war began. And that, that just seemed intolerable to people, understandably. And to top it all off, there's the question of whether the federal government even has the authority to force state governments to protect the rights of the former slaves and union supporters in the South. These were incredibly complex issues. And in the early months of the 39th Congress, there was chaos. Multiple amendments, more than 30 amendments, um, were introduced probably within the first 30 days of the 39th Congress, all of them pointing in different directions, all of them representing uh, different theories. Before we dive into that, let's take a step back and talk about the various factions in Congress and the White House. You had a president, Andrew Johnson, a Democrat from Tennessee. The Democrats insisted, and Andrew Johnson took the lead in making this insistence, that it had been wrong to exclude the Southern states. Southern states who had voted to ratify the 13th Amendment, whose votes counted in the ratification of the 13th Amendment. And if those uh, Southern states had governments that were qualified to vote on an amendment to the United States, under what possible grounds could Congress refuse to seat them in determining how we're to move forward 
now during peacetime uh, with reconstructing the South. Right. Well, the great irony of Andrew Johnson is that a white Southerner is president during Reconstruction, right? And of course, that is an accident created by the fact that he was put on the ticket in 1864 to help attract the votes in uh, border states that still had slavery in 1864, or just other conservative Democrats. So Johnson uh, initially is supportive of, for example, the abolition of slavery and some very basic things that he wants the Southern states to do to be admitted to the Union. But once you get past that point and he runs into the more stronger demands coming out of Congress for protections for African-Americans and other measures, uh, he becomes a very fierce opponent and uses his authority both in vetoing legislation, partly on white supremacy grounds, but partly also on the on the ground that Congress simply lacked the legitimacy to do these things because the Southerners were not represented in the House and the Senate. And after all, well, could Congress pass a law, let alone a constitutional amendment, when a significant chunk of the country was not represented in Congress. And then you have the Republicans. They have big majorities in both the House and the Senate, but they are sharply divided into different camps, the moderates and the radicals. The Republicans were not uniform in their particular ideology or their approach to Reconstruction. They were divided between radical Republicans who had a very expansive understanding of national power, who believed that there was nothing that prevented Congress both from abolishing slavery even without a 13th Amendment, and certainly passing civil rights statutes without the need for additional amendments. Um, they had a general idea that there was inherent power in Congress to take control of the situation uh, without any sort of um, change in the Constitution. This group of radical Republicans includes Charles Sumner of Massachusetts in the Senate and Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania in the House. They believed that because the North had won the war, the Union Army could and should occupy the former Confederate states indefinitely. The radical Republicans wanted a fundamental reorganization of Southern society as the price to be paid for readmission. And that uh, was represented by people like Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, who took the view that the real problem in, in the South was the denial of rights to to the slaves and then the freed slaves once they were freed, but also the power of the plantation-owning elites. And that if you broke up that power by basically redistributing wealth and taking other measures to sort of um, equalize land ownership in the South, that that was really what was required to have true equality. But with a different approach were the moderates. Moderate Republicans, and in particular, I think the, the personality you'd, you need to focus in on is John Bingham, not only because he drafted Section 1, or most of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, but also because he represented a particular approach, a particular constitutional philosophy that became important in the debates that took place during the 39th Congress. Bingham, a representative from Ohio and a dedicated abolitionist, does not think Congress has the authority to pass and enforce civil rights legislation that is binding on the states. He also has an unusual story. His closest friend in college was a former slave, which was a very unusual experience for a man who went to college in the 1830s in America. And uh, one of his classmates was an ex-slave, uh, Titus Bassfield. And so they were friends then, and then they basically corresponded um, for decades afterwards. Uh, eventually, Bassfield became a minister and went moved to Canada. To, he preached at a church that basically was attended by uh, slaves who had escaped on the Underground Railroad to Canada. And they corresponded until Bassfield's death, which occurred sometime in the 1870s. Moderate Republicans disagreed with the expansive visions of national power of the radical Republicans and insisted that Although they shared the goals of passing civil rights legislation and they shared the goals of bringing freedom to the people in the South, both white and black, they nevertheless believed in federalism. They believed that the national government had limited enumerated powers and that in order to grant them power to pass civil rights legislation needed civil rights legislation, there would need to be the addition of amendments. So they insisted, first of all, on a 13th Amendment, 
uh, one abolishing slavery, um, and arguing that if we wanted to go forward with civil rights legislation, there would have to be more. There would have to be new amendments to the Constitution. And finally, you have the conservative Republicans, who would sometimes move towards the moderates and sometimes toward the Democrats. As the 39th Congress went about trying to determine the nature and the scope of Reconstruction in the House, in the early weeks, they quickly divided uh, between the approach of the Senate and the approach of the House. The Senate immediately went forward with a legislative agenda. A legislative agenda meaning that there was no need for further constitutional amendments. Congress had all the authority it needed. Stevens took the view that the 13th Amendment, in giving Congress the power to enforce the abolition of slavery or the prohibition on slavery, uh, that that was like a general power to legislate in favor of liberty, right? And so Congress had broad powers to confer rights uh, upon the freed slaves, but also just to legislate more generally in the name of uh, of the prohibition against slavery. And uh, he was suspicious of the thought that you needed to achieve the broader consensus necessary to get constitutional amendments because first it was harder to do. And second, well, would it really make any difference if you had something further in the constitution? Would that really accomplish anything or was that more just a, f a formalism that, uh, that was sort of a, a waste of the political capital that they had? That's the radical Republican view. Out of the Senate, you get legislation to extend the Freedmen's Bureau, which President Johnson vetoes, but Congress overrides. You also get what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1866. In the House, the first approach was a constitutional agenda. You also had representatives like John Bingham, who proposed early visions of what would become Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, um, protecting a degree of due process, equal due process rights, and protecting uh, privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. These two agendas were being debated at the same time. And things got heated between Thaddeus Stevens, the de facto leader of the radical Republicans, and John Bingham, the leader of the moderates. They both wanted civil rights, but their disagreements about strategy made them bitter political enemies. And so John Bingham refused to support the Civil Rights Act. Um, he and other moderate Republicans, and certainly all of the Democrats, believed that it would be unconstitutional to move forward with the Civil Rights Act until first getting something granting Congress additional power. Nonetheless, the Civil Rights Act moves forward and becomes law in the spring of 1866 after Congress overrides President Johnson's veto. It repudiates the Dred Scott ruling that said blacks cannot be citizens. The Civil Rights Act declared that all people born in the United States, with some exceptions like the children of diplomats, are entitled to be citizens, without regard to race, color, or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude. But leaders in Congress are worried that the Supreme Court will strike down the act. Three justices who were in the majority in Dred Scott are still on the court, and some of the remaining justices, even ones appointed by Lincoln, were not in favor of black citizenship. Congressional Republicans are also worried that if they lose their majorities, then a subsequent Congress will repeal the act. It's not an idle concern. Around the same time the act is passed, Connecticut holds elections, in the spring rather than the fall like most states, and Democrats campaigning on an anti-reconstruction platform very nearly win. Republicans believe their majority is precarious, so later in the session, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution picks up steam, and the nation is watching. The debates in Congress, of the 39th Congress, were published on a daily basis by major national newspapers, which contained the actual debates themselves, were then um, carried over into more regional newspapers, and you can find excerpts of debates in the House and the Senate in the smallest local newspapers, um, both in the West and up and down the Eastern Seaboard. There was remarkable penetration. The public is aware of John Bingham's opposition, uh, to the Civil Rights Act of 1866. They're aware of his dramatic statements that we need to finally make the Bill of Rights enforceable against the states. Um, so then those debates themselves become part of the political debates during ratification, where you'll see both Democrats and Republicans referring to the debates and how everyone knows that certain portions of the 14th Amendment were in response uh, to certain uh, speeches regarding the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So it, it is this remarkable 
public event um, and not something which just takes place uh, behind closed doors that we have to wait two decades to get the secret proceedings ultimately, um, ultimately published. No, everyone was aware of what was going on. And what's going on is that in an effort to appeal to different factions, the moderate Republicans stitched together five different proposed constitutional amendments into one big amendment. The 14th Amendment is an incredibly complex amendment. It's made of five separate sections. There had never been anything like this um, added to the Constitution before. You have an opening section which talks about American citizenship and privileges and immunities and due process rights. Section 1 repudiates Dred Scott, and it provides for a uniform set of rights applicable to all citizens while securing citizenship for African Americans. You have a second section that talks about how seats in the House of Representatives are going to be apportioned and how they'll be reduced if um, uh, there isn't equal suffrage given to qualified males. You have a section disfranchising former rebel officials who had betrayed their oaths. You have a provision saying that slave owners shall not receive any compensation for their, um, for their freed slaves. And then finally, it's all summed up um, by granting Congress power to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment. All of these sections began as different standalone amendments that went through different forms. And by March of 1866, it didn't look like any of them had sufficient support by two-thirds of the members of Congress to actually become a standalone amendment. By joining the five amendments into one, Bingham and the moderate Republicans get the votes they need to pass it through Congress and send it to the states in June 1866. But the fight for the 14th is just getting started. When Congress sent the 14th Amendment out to the states um, to be ratified, um, it triggered an enormous political battle that would extend over the next two years. By the way, when Congress passes a constitutional amendment, there's no need to first get the president to sign it before it goes to the states. So President Johnson doesn't have an opportunity to veto the 14th. What he does do is personally tour the country in the summer and fall before the elections of 1866, denouncing it and urging voters to reject it. Now, this is an event that often is forgotten in discussions about uh, the history of the 14th Amendment, but it played a critical role. It has to be among the most important national elections that our country has ever, um, ever experienced. What occurred is that Democrats went on the campaign trail and with Andrew Johnson, who wasn't facing re-election, but who was campaigning on behalf of the Democrats, swung the circuit, calling on the American people to reject the efforts of the Republicans and instead elect Democrats um, in the coming elections of 1866. And the plan was, if enough Democrats were elected and they took enough seats from Republicans, they would create a second Congress, an alternative Congress, one made up of Northern Democrats and the excluded Southern Democrats. The stage was set for a second civil war. And Republican um, and Democrat officials began to plan for a second civil war and began to mobilize who would be their loyal militias should such a thing come about. In the meantime, Andrew Johnson, as he rode the circuit campaigning on behalf of Democrats, had someone seated next to him on the stage the entire time. The silent figure of Ulysses S. Grant, in full uniform, leader of the Army of the Potomac, communicating that if push came to shove, the Union Army was gonna stand with the president. We were facing potential constitutional disaster. While he was out on the campaign trail, Andrew Johnson insisted that both the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment were illegal and unconstitutional because the Southern states were not represented in Congress. And he also argued that they weren't necessary because the Southern states could be relied upon to live up to the 13th Amendment and to protect the rights of the freedmen. This debate um, received a jolt um, by a terrible tragedy that occurred in the mid-summer of 1866, when a group of freedmen in Louisiana had gathered in an assembly to debate amending the Louisiana state constitution to grant blacks the right to suffrage. 
Local officials found out about the assembly and at the direction of the mayor of New Orleans sent a mob to attack um, the otherwise peaceful as assembly and they shot down the members even as they tried to escape and as they tried to surrender. The massacre and the riots of New Orleans became a national scandal and affected the elections of 1866 in a dramatic way. Prior to these riots, which were reported in newspapers primarily in August of 1866, Democrats were trying to make the argument that there was no need for a 14th Amendment, that in fact, once the war was over, we could trust um, southern states who had ratified the 13th Amendment to provide um, decent protection of persons and property for all the blacks in the South. After the riots of New Orleans, however, Republicans were able to point to that particular tragedy and maintain that this was precisely the reason why we needed an amendment declaring that no state shall make or enforce any law abridging the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States or denying any person um, life, liberty, or property without due process of law or the equal protection of the laws. And when President Johnson tried to claim that the Republicans were wrongly inflaming an issue um, and preventing peace from coming to the country, uh, the country was able to look at New Orleans and realize that it was Andrew Johnson who was refusing to allow peace to come to the South, and they re-elected Republicans in a landslide. Still, even though Republicans have retained their electoral majority in Congress, the fate of the 14th Amendment rests with the states, three-fourths of which must ratify it, which won't happen if the southern states decline to ratify. And who are the delegates from those states? The landowning white elite. They ratified the 13th Amendment in order to rejoin the Union, but when it comes time to ratify the 14th Amendment, they reject it. Republicans have to decide how to proceed. One approach was offered by radical Republicans like Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens suggested, we don't need the 14th Amendment after all. We now have all the political power we need after the elections of 1866. We can simply move forward with a legislative agenda um, and abandon the need to um, pursue a 14th Amendment to the Constitution. But John Bingham pushed back in the early months of 1867. He urged Republicans to keep the faith, and he proposed a new plan that would require the southern states to hold new constitutional conventions to form new state governments, and after that, hold a second vote on whether to ratify the 14th Amendment. And this time, the military would oversee the vote to ensure that black voters, who had been excluded from the previous vote, would be able to participate. Others have pointed out that the, the basic problem is that at this time, the federal government has only one institution that is large enough and sophisticated enough to organize this ratification process, the army, the Union Army, right? There's no, there's no federal agency of whatever that's going to be able to do this. Now, the trouble is if you do anything through the army, that casts a big shadow over the legitimacy of what you're doing. Uh, because first of all, you might say that military authorities might not be the best people to do that sort of thing, but also because they're ultimately doing it where with you know the barrel of a gun, there was really no way to avoid that problem though. I mean, the, you know, there was, I mean, you, we can all say, well, gee, why didn't they just come up with a bunch of agencies? And of course they did a little bit of that. There was a Freedmen's Bureau and a right. few other things, but on a very small scale because the resources simply weren't there. Um, so that was, that was a basic problem. Um, the other problem is, look, in the aftermath of a civil war, you need significant buy-in from the losers in order to make whatever comes out of it legitimate. Now, there were efforts made to do that. I mean, a general amnesty was given, and one can talk about various ways in which, of course, the South might have been treated more leniently. But, of course, that's, that wasn't the way most of the white Southerners saw it. Bingham's plan prevails. Southern state legislatures are disbanded, and the South is divided into five military districts under martial law. They're told they can rejoin the Union when they pass new state constitutions that provide for equal rights. But now there's another problem. Military oversight um, was conducted by the Secretary of War. Edwin Stanton uh, was Secretary of War, and he could be counted on as a radical Republican to ensure that these new conventions, these new votes were held. Andrew Johnson also knew that Stanton would make sure that it was accomplished, and so he removed Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War. 
and he replaced him with a man who had sat on the stage next to him throughout all of his campaign speeches of 1866, Ulysses S. Grant. At that point, Ulysses S. Grant became temporary secretary and under the Tenure in Office Act, when Congress returned to session a few months down the road, they would decide whether or not to support the removal of Edwin Stanton. For those critical months, not a single vote in favor of the 14th Amendment was held. Everyone was holding their breath to see what Congress would do and whether or not um, the president would be forced to bring Stanton back um, to his office. When Congress returned, everyone understood that they were going to disapprove of the removal of Edwin Stanton. So President Johnson told Ulysses S. Grant, when Congress moves, don't do anything. Come and communicate to me and we'll decide what to do at that point. And clearly his idea was that he was going to litigate the constitutionality of the Tenure in Office Act and see if he could draw out the political debate and ultimately kill the 14th Amendment through inaction. When Congress ultimately voted to disapprove of the removal of Stanton, Ulysses S. Grant disobeyed the President of the United States. He didn't go to Johnson, he went to Edwin Stanton, and he handed him the keys to the office, and he wrote a polite letter to Andrew Johnson saying, I resign. Andrew Johnson was furious. He immediately announced the firing of Stanton and that he was going to be replaced and that he would not stand for this insubordination. But when he fired Stanton, that was an official violation of the Tenure in Office Act. The House immediately voted to impeach Andrew Johnson. Congress is tired of President Johnson holding up Reconstruction, and they're looking for any excuse to impeach. The Tenure in Office Act violation is the excuse they need. And two members carried the articles of impeachment to the Senate. One was Thaddeus Stevens, who was so old and so close to dying that he could not proceed on his own without assistance. And so holding on to his arm and helping him into the Senate was John Bingham. The two former adversaries therefore traveled to the Senate and led the impeachment proceedings against Andrew Johnson that then carried forth over the next few months. Johnson escaped impeachment by a single vote, but he was politically crippled. Edwin Stanton remained Secretary of War. He successfully oversaw the new conventions and the creation of new governments in the South. And one by one, the former rebel states, now with the votes of blacks, ratified the 14th Amendment. In 1868, 150 years ago, for the first time, the Constitution guarantees all Americans a uniform set of rights, and Congress has the authority to protect those rights if they are violated by state governments. But there's one more piece to the story of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, a piece that Professor Francois says is understudied and undertold. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about what today would be called grassroots organizing to get the amendment over the finish line in the southern states. We're going to talk about the role that African Americans played in rewriting the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States of America. This Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, the senators and representatives, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution.
If we just talk about what Congress did during the fight for the 14th Amendment, we miss a big part of the picture. The 14th Amendment was the first time in our constitutional structure where African-Americans, black people, as individuals and as a group, actively participated and shaped um, that constitution. In other words, without black participation, the 14th Amendment doesn't get ratified in, in some significant ways. As we discussed earlier, the first time the southern states vote on the 14th Amendment, they reject it. The southern states, having after having ratified the uh, 13th Amendment, draw a line. That's basically this much and no further. And except for Tennessee, which has its own strange history as to how it passed it, the others simply don't want to. Um, so now you're sort of stuck. So let's look at it. Maybe the best way to think about it is to look at the example of one particular state. Let's take South Carolina, right? After the war, South Carolina calls uh, a convention. The convention is essentially a white convention. The cream of the cream of South Carolina high society, um, the top, the propertied class, folks who essentially were controlling the Confederacy. They vote 98 to 8 to adopt the 13th Amendment. But then whenever issues come up regarding black suffrage, they say absolutely not. But here's what's also happening on the ground at the same time. In November of 1865, very soon after that convention, which is a white convention uh, from which blacks are excluded, blacks basically form their own convention. They call it the Colored People's Convention out of um, Zion Church in South Carolina. And that convention is the beginning of their pushing for black participation. The convention publishes an address to the people of the state. Fellow citizens, we have assembled as delegates representing the colored people of the state of South Carolina. Although we feel keenly our wrongs, we would address you not as enemies, but as friends and fellow countrymen. Incidentally, one of the speakers at the Zion Church that year, mere weeks after the end of the war, is someone you may recognize from episode one, Salmon P. Chase, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who accepted John Rock's admission to the Supreme Court bar. The armies of the rebellion are disbanded. Peace returns, and peace brings with it duties. A great race numbering four millions is suddenly brought into freedom. The colored man has borne his full, proper share in the great struggle. I know of no reason why the hand that laid down the bayonet might not take up the ballot. Two years later, in 1867, black men finally do get the vote. Soon after, South Carolina sends six black men to the U.S. House of Representatives. Four of them were at the convention at Zion Church in 1865. That's where it starts. And it does a couple of things. The first thing it does is that it begins to establish what for them will be a priority in the next few years. What they're trying to do is establish two priorities. The first one has to do with education. They want public education. The measures which have been adopted for the development of white men's children have been denied to us and ours. And the second thing that they want to do is basically the right to vote. We are also, by the present laws, not only denied the right of citizenship, the inestimable right of voting for those who rule over us in the land of our birth. But by the so-called black code, we are deprived. The right to engage in any legitimate business free from any restraints, save those which govern all other citizens of this state. When John Bingham and other players in Congress decide to hold a second ratification vote for the 14th Amendment and open the vote to blacks, the political organization on the ground already exists. So what happens indeed is that by the time you get this new constitutional convention that's going to meet in Charleston to vote to ratify the 14th, for the first time, it is a multiracial convention, and the vast majority of the, uh, of the participants are actually blacks. What's also extraordinary in some instances where people vote for their delegates, you have participation, voter participation among the black population to be as high as 90%. And that's in part, says Professor Francois, because the Freedmen's Bureau helps prepare blacks to vote, explaining how to register and what you need to know. But there's also an organization, or rather a loose group of organizations, called the Southern Union Leagues, which we would now call a grassroots way of organizing and indeed educating African Americans to vote, to register and vote 
um, in two ways. The first was to vote to select delegates to the constitutional conventions for the various states that would, in fact, consider the 14th Amendment. And in addition, obviously, to vote uh, for the candidates of their choice. And these leagues served the function of essentially a sort of civic education group where you would take folks that that had previously been in slavery and engage in a process of educating them about the Constitution, about political organization, about registering, about voting. And they did so at great personal risk. But in addition to that, those meetings had to take place in secret. Uh, in part because of the threats of violence. And they develop a sort of whole series of rituals around their meeting that sometimes made it seem as if they were sort of mysterious, Masonic-like organizations. At their meetings, Southern Union League members recited a ritual incantation. Worthy sons of freedom, we bid you welcome. This circle of freedom and equal rights now encircling you must never be broken by treachery. To conclude meetings, members said four words, liberty, Lincoln, loyal, and league, each one accompanied by a secret sign you made with your arms. But part of the reason why is that they wanted to make certain that their members were kept safe, that they were not infiltrated, and they would not divulge the places and locations where they met. White Democrats know about the leagues, and they are incensed. Many um, white Democrats in the South complain bitterly about these leagues um, because they insisted that rather than being sort of grassroots organizations, they simply serve as a means by which white Northern Republican carpetbaggers supposedly would um, bribe and pay off blacks and simply tell them how to vote. And for the leagues to do their work, women were essential. In many instances, the need to organize politically had to be done undercover. The church was a useful way of doing it because the church provided you a ready-made excuse to explain this sort of large group of people getting together. Secondly, because you needed to to do it in secret, you needed people to be able to organize it. And in some ways, women were in a better position to do so than men. In great part because even during slavery, but certainly post-slavery, women had a lot more freedom to move in society between the black and the white world than black men. Um, And women also had a lot more control over the home. So a lot of the times what happened is that these organization meetings would take place not only in churches, but also in homes, right? Um, and the sort of communications for those meetings and organizations, etc., would essentially be taken care of um, um, by women. So I think sometimes um, the role that they played in modification of the 14th Amendment, the role that women played in the Union League, the role that women played in educating voters is sometimes underappreciated. So the story of the 14th Amendment is more than just a story of politicians, but also of African Americans who fought to change the Constitution. Because of them, 150 years ago, the country tries, in an important way, to live up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, by enshrining birthright citizenship, by creating a uniform set of rights that all Americans are entitled to, and by remedying the flaw in the design of the original Constitution that permitted states to violate individual rights. After the amendment is ratified, the black codes are repealed. African Americans for the first time are elected to Congress. Over 2,000 serve in federal, state, and local offices. In Mississippi, an African American is elected to the U.S. Senate seat once held by Jefferson Davis. In South Carolina, a black man is elected to the state's Supreme Court. There's a legitimate reason to be hopeful for the future. But the 14th Amendment has one more gauntlet to run. The U.S. Supreme Court. And as we'll see in the next episode, the amendment does not emerge unscathed.
next time on Bound by Oath. The slaughterhouse cases and the evisceration of the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. Episode 3 of Bound by Oath will be released on January 22nd. In the meantime, extended interviews with scholars will be published on our webpage, shortcircuit.org. Bound by Oath is a production of the Institute for Justice's Center for Judicial Engagement. The project was edited by Goat Rodeo. Writing and narration by John Ross. Vision and expert guidance by Sheldon Gilbert. Project management by Rachel Hannabass. Research and fact-checking by Nicholas Mosvik. Research by Nick Foti with voice work by Keith Irby. This episode made generous use of the work of historians Mary Ellen Curtin, Peggy Lamson, and Paul Finkelman. You can find links to their work on our webpage.